Christ Community Church, located at 25th and Thomas Avenue in Portsmouth, Ohio. Christ Community meets on Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 10.30 a.m. For more information, visit www.christcommunity.net or check out our Facebook page. We're in the um, process of introducing this morning a different series of sermons on the book of Daniel. And there's a good reason why the book of Daniel has been chosen. We'll talk about that in a minute. We're going to, uh, you'll be introduced to some people that you already know and a few that you may not. And uh, the story, of course, is about a young fella who was taken into captivity by a king from Babylon named Nebuchadnezzar. And uh, he selected the finest young men. When he came and conquered Jerusalem, he selected a handful of the brightest and the best-looking young men that he could find of the Hebrew country uh, to help bring to Babylon to uh, as an intercessor between the people that they had brought from Israel and, and tried to resettle there primarily as slaves in, in the land of Babylon, in the city area there of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar, I was introduced to him early on in life. I can remember uh, our basketball team in high school, and the cheerleaders had a cheer about Nebuchadnezzar. And you remember those things in life that are really important. And, uh, and so I can remember that cheer, word for word. You know, the girls would get out there, and they would do the cheer, and they'd whirl around. And today they wear these long breeches and everything. You don't get to see any pretty legs or anything. But then they did. They'd whirl around in there, and you could actually get, they wore tights that everybody could. And this is something about your history you ought to know. Because uh, the cheerleaders today are performers. Then they just tried to get people to yell for the team, which is really what they ought to be doing anyway. Anyway, the cheer was this. Nebuchadnezzar was a bulldog's pup. A fighting fool was he. He wouldn't give in, and he wouldn't give up, and neither by gosh will we. So, you know, that's, that's what I remember about high school. The rest of the stuff I don't really remember. You know. Now, the, uh, when you get my age and people who are probably 70 and up, and I heard somebody mention this morning somebody was 99 and whatever. My mother lived, would have been 99 in another six weeks when she passed away. You have a tendency, I am told, to look back at things like that and recall those things well, even though you can't remember what you had for breakfast. But you look back and you... And the thing that we have a tendency to do is to think that if we brought the past back up to, the, to today, we would all be better off. Because we have a tendency to look back in the past and to think that those were the good old days and things were a lot better then than they are now. And, and to be honest with you, in the realm of religion and education and other stuff for our country, I'm there. But the problem with that is it ain't going to happen, number one. And number two, you have a tendency not to 
evaluate properly where you are now. And the book of Daniel is written in such a way that it draws our attention in the life of Daniel and his friends and the kings that he served. It, it has a tendency to say, forget about going back to Jerusalem. You're now in Babylon and you have a responsibility to, to be God's person where you are at the time you're living. And so if you're here and you're like I am and you have a tendency to, to uh, honor the past beyond what it really was and thinking those good old days that probably weren't that good anyway. But who was it that said, I think it was the author of Tom Sawyer who said, the older I get, the faster I could swim when I was a kid. You have a tendency to view the past that way, and the result of it is that we're not dealing effectively with the here and the now. And so I want to take some time as we introduce the book and introduce you to some people that you may or may not remember. I want us to think about the here and now. And, and I drove all the way over a, a town... Uh, Saturday, looking at what the churches were doing to clean up our town and so on and so forth. And, and I got some heat for some people to say, why, why weren't you all out there doing that? Because I'll, and I'll tell you, it's because that's not what our emphasis as a congregation is right now. And here's the reason why. And I don't know why people are not believing what we're telling them about our children. But they're not buying into it. Seven out of ten of your kids, seven out of ten of those kids who were out cleaning up our town, and God bless them, there's not a thing wrong with that, and it sure needs it. But seven out of ten of those kids, when they go to college, are going to leave the faith. Now, which is more important? To have kind of a dirty town where your kids go to heaven, or having a clean town when they go to hell? And, and that's the choices that we're looking at right now. Because we're not equipped to do both. It's going to take all of the energy and the intelligence and the focus we got to reverse that trend so that we can say to you with some confidence that seven out of ten of your kids are going to go to heaven and they're not going to leave the faith when they go to college. But right now, right now, seven out of ten of your kids and your grandkids when they go to college and you're going to help pay for it are going to leave the faith. I happen to believe that in the realm of faith, that's the most important thing in our life today, today. Now, that didn't happen when I was growing up because we didn't have the same stresses and we didn't have college teachers who were actually recruiting you for the devil. We didn't have any of that. Oh, there may have been a little, but I never heard about it. And I went to a liberal seminary, but I never heard any of that. And these kids today, when they go to Shawnee State or any state school, are going to be recruited to leave the faith. And seven out of ten are going to do it. And so what we're about here is putting together a strategy that will help families. And when you help families in the church, you help your church. Because a church is only as strong as the families of which she's composed. 
So all of our resources intellectually and, and financial and everything else is focused on the one thing. How do we get that turned around so that we save the next generation for Jesus Christ? Daniel, as a teenager, probably, pick a number, 17 years old, maybe 18 at the most, was selected by the representatives of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, he said, pick out the best there is and bring them to Babylon, uh, to Babylon and we're going to train them to be Babylonians and to help us handle the situation here because, see, all of, all of those countries, what they did is they took a lot of the people from Israel when they conquered it to, back to somewhere else and then they brought people from somewhere else to settle there and, and so that they couldn't talk to one another because they spoke different languages and if they couldn't talk to one another, they couldn't start a revolution. So it was, a, it was a, a, a plan that they had. And since they'd taken a whole bunch of people, uh, they've conquered the northern kingdom in and, and, and 721, and now in 586 they, they're, they've, they're conquering the southern kingdom of Judah, and they've taken those people over to Babylon, and they can't speak the same language, and so he brings people from there who are well-educated so they can communicate with those people and help them integrate into their society. Now, with that in mind, let's understand something about uh, what, what Daniel is all about. So how do you go to an atmosphere that is hostile to your faith, where people who are there only want you there to be a slave for them, how do you go to an atmosphere where your God is not welcome, and they never even heard of him. You worship someone that you refer to as Yahweh, and they have a whole plethora of, of gods for the sun, the moon, for the ground, for, for sex, for everything else. They have a God for everything. And they don't want yours added to theirs. So how do you live in that atmosphere? Because you and I now live, we no longer live in a Christian nation. Now, there are those who say we never did have a Christian nation. I think they were wrong. I think there was a time when it was founded. It was based on people, Christian people coming here to be free to worship God. But that's all changed. In fact... There are parts of the, of, the, of the Bible that if you quoted now in public would be called hate speech. If you were to go to the 15th chapter of the Gospel of John and say, quote Jesus as saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh unto the Father except through me, you would be then, that, that is being called hate speech. Already people have been put in jail for quoting that passage of Scripture in Canada. And it's coming here. It's coming here. So the question then, in this kind of hostile atmosphere, and that's where, they, that's where Daniel was, how can we remain faithful to our God and to our faith in what is an atmosphere that is adversarial to everything that we believe? The book of Daniel was written so that you and I could get our arms around that concept and know, kind of know what to do. Now, 
Let's read the opening part of the first chapter, these first eight verses. And I've labeled that on your, and, and you need to open up your, uh, you need to open up your uh, bulletins and get this little sheet of paper out here because you're going to see things that you don't know that you need to know to understand what we're talking about. Because you're going to meet these Hebrew children and you'll see what's going on as when they, they're taken from Jerusalem to the city of Babylon and the king there says, okay, start brainwashing these, the brightest of the Jewish children, and turn them into useful instruments for the kingdom of Babylon. It was in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. Now Israel was then the divided nation, and the northern kingdom was called Samaria. Southern kingdom was called Judah. The northern kingdom have already, with the capital of Samaria, had already been destroyed. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God, the temple that was located in Jerusalem. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylon and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, qualified to serve in the king's palace. In other words, I want the best educated. And why did he go to the nobility? The nobility are those people in, in Jerusalem who had already gone to university and had a university degree and had shown to be brighter than most. He was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. And the king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years. Now, I need to, I need to stop there for a minute. Why three years? The answer to that is, I don't know. But I can tell you that that concept is repeated in the Scripture as a time that it takes to train your followers. Point in fact, how long were the apostles with Jesus before he went to heaven? Three years. That concept then was brought into our current educational system by the churches. When I was in school, and Danny went to, uh, the, to a school, in, to a seminary in Indianapolis, to get what was called then a Bachelor of Divinity, a BD degree, required three years. Now that name has been changed. They no longer call it a Bachelor of Divinity. They call it a Master of Theology simply because it fits into the concept of working on toward your Ph.D. Matthew has applied for a Ph.D. in... in uh, in apologetics. And so what, when he was a pagan, he went down to Shawnee State where the rest of the pagans, and then when he graduated from there, he got him, got him a boil on his butt and was converted because he thought he was going to die of cancer. And so then he went to 
uh, Abilene Christian University for three years and got a Master of Divinity. And then uh, in order to, uh, to be a shyster, he, he went to an Ivy League school and became a lawyer. Uh, and that's another three-year program. And now he's working on a Ph.D. in apologetics. And so the, the Master of Divinity was changed to a... And so when I was in school at Vanderbilt in graduate school and seminary there, it was called a Bachelor of Divinity. Now, that's all been changed. But it's a three-year program. And so you, you, whether it uh, goes back to Babylon or to the followers of Jesus or today, they, the, the assumption is in that three years, you can prepare people for what you want them to be intellectually and academically. And so that's, three, that's why that three years is there, and that's the effect that it's had over a period of time. Now, starting at verse 6. Among these, and this is where your little piece of paper is going to come in handy here. Among the people that they were chosen, he, didn't, he doesn't list all of them. He lists the, the ones that, uh, that he's going to mention several times later on. There were some from Judah... Daniel, and, and that word Daniel means God is judge in Hebrew. That's it. Daniel is his Hebrew name. Anytime you see an E-L at the end of a name in the Bible, that E-L stands for God in Hebrew. Because there's Eloah, Elohim, Elo, blah, 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 blah. You know, and you don't need to know all that. Now, then there was Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official then gave them New names, Babylonian names. And, the, and way back then, there was, and even in the time of Jesus, there was a tendency to name people for a purpose. Jesus did that with Simon, called Peter. Changes, and there's several in the Bible. That name has been changed. And so what, the, what they did... Because this is a brainwashing thing. How do we take these boys who are Hebrews and turn them into Babylonians? And make them of value to the Babylonian king. And so he says, I'm going to change their names. So Daniel, he changed his name to Belshazzar. Now, Bel, B-E-L, was the primary god in the pantheon of gods of the Babylonians. So he named him after a Babylonian god. And if you look at your piece of paper here, he did the same thing with all three. The, and, and he named, as it, as it tells you here in plain English, uh, Hananiah, uh, to Shadrach, Mishael, to Meshach, and Azariah, to Abednego. All of those, the names that you know are Babylonian names. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you know all of those. But all of those were named after a Babylonian god, if you look at your little piece of paper here. Because I went to the trouble to show you what they were doing. They were in the process of taking these boys who were Hebrews, and their god was Yahweh, and only one god, and he was the one and only god, and putting them in an atmosphere where they had gods for everything. And you can see that because Shadrach means the, the, the light that comes from the sun god, and Meshach it, it was Ishtar, and, uh, and it just meant, I asked the question about that, and it tells you who they are on down here. Now, 
these Babylonian gods I, I put there so you would understand what the process that was going on because there was a conscious effort to make these guys fit into the culture where they were. Now, what we have today that affects you exactly the same way, whether you're aware of it or not, but political correctness is what you could call what was happening here. And all of our young people are under that pressure in college and university and, and the millennials of all buying into that foolishness, that's why they're so easily attracted to a thing called socialism. And socialism has, by historical precedent, has always been an adversary of Christianity. In fact, the founder of that, as far as we call it today, referred to Christianity and religion in general as being an opiate of the people. In other words, he said, you're doped up if you're a dopey, if you believe that. Now, at the same time, Daniel was put into this atmosphere. Notice what happened. But Daniel resolved, verse 8, Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. Now, the question is, how could the royal food and wine that came from the king's table at the king's command defile him? Actually, this is a problem that the early church had. The first problem they had was, do you have to become a Jew to become a Christian? And, and so circumcision was a big deal. The second problem they had was, do you eat meat that was offered to idols? And if you look in the book of Romans, and we just finished Galatians, that subject is addressed there, and it's addressed at some length in the 14th, 15th chapter of the book of Romans. And so it, here is the deal. The apostle Paul says, they're not really gods anyway. They're just something the people have created, and they call them a god, but they're not. And so the meat that's offered to them is cheap. Buy it. Bless it and eat it. So if you're, and, and, but, but notice as he said, but if by eating it and, the, and you're eating it in the presence of a person who has been converted from one of these pagan religions and he thinks that meat is filled with demons, don't eat it rather than causing them to stumble. Because you and I would be better off to have a, a stone hung around her neck and thrown into the, into the river than to cause a newcomer to stumble. We're responsible for each other. And, and so what happened was they had vegans a long time before it became popular. Because he said, if that's the case, just eat vegetables. Believe it or not, that's exactly what's happening here. Let's keep reading. Now, so Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief officials for permission not to defile himself in this way. But God had caused the official to show favor and sympathy to Daniel, but the official told him, I'm afraid of my lord the king who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? And the king would then have my head because of you. The assumption was that if you had a lot of good protein to eat, you would be better looking than the people who uh, would just eat vegetables. And so Daniel said, well, hey, let's just have a 10-day contest. 
Shadrach, Shishak, Abednego, and Belshazzar, that's Daniel and his buddies, we will just eat vegetables. Everybody else that's been chosen can eat from the king's table. And at the end of 10 days, you tell me which one of them is the best looking. Now, this is going to be interesting. At the end of 10 days, we know what happened. Here's what happened. At the end, this is verse 15. At the end of 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food, who ate the meat. So, fellas, give up the meat and the babes will think you're cute. It's just that simple. I've thought a lot about it, but at my age, my energy is so much weaker than it was that I don't have the strength to fight the babes off, so I'm going to keep eating the meat. Now, so the guard took away the choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning, and Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. Better underline that because that becomes the next big issue. The next big issue. Now, when God blesses people, when God blesses people, wonderful things happen. He said, this is verse 19 and following, The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Meshach, and Azariah. That's their Hebrew name. So they entered the king's service. Every manner of wisdom, understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than the, than the same people who were, uh, who were uh, Babylonians. Now understand, if you want to underline that ten times better, that's not to be taken literally. It is a, uh, a statement that we often use. I've heard people say this. I drive a Ford because it's ten times better than a Chevy. And I've got a, you know, I drive 10 times. You know, it's not exactly 10 times. It is meant as an exaggeration for effect. And that's what he's doing. These were so much better. They were so much better students than the Babylonians that they use this term here. I mean, they were counting 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. Now then, so that's the background that we have here. And one of the things I need to mention before we go on to number two is please understand that Daniel was probably tempted the same way you and I are tempted when we do not stand for our faith as we should. And I'll go back to one of the things that I know I did and my parents and many other Christians did. At the time, our government said... You can no longer read and, uh, the Bible and pray in public schools. We said nothing because we said, well, it's the law and we shouldn't break the law. Well, it was the law of the king who said, Daniel, you guys eat food from my table, including the meat and drinking the wine. And Daniel said, uh-uh. You see, he stood on his faith, knowing very good and well that it could get him into a heap of trouble. One of the heroes that I had in my life was my mother. She was a school teacher for about 50 years of her life. 
And she taught in, she retired from Kentucky, went to Lakeland, Florida, and somebody said, well, she's a retired school teacher, and there was a school called Kathleen on the west side of Lake. I think it's the west side of Lakeland. Most of the children there uh, were black children. And Mother, just like she had in Kentucky, where people do things right most of the time, she always opened her class with a pledge of allegiance. And see, we were talking about this last night. You listen to television and all the, you, you'll hear these left-wingers talk about democracy, democracy, democracy. We're not a democracy. And the reason they quit saying the Pledge of Allegiance in public is because it says what? And for the republic for which it stands. And so they avoid that. This is not the democracy. This is a representative republic. But since it says that in the Pledge of Allegiance, they no longer use it in the schools where they're trying to brainwash your children. Fact. That's one of the reasons. You know, you, you, and, and when all of this happened about the Bible and its influence in the schools, no longer prayer, I was one of those who said, well, it's the law, and we'll obey the law. And I was just 100% wrong. I should have been on my heels, raising more, you know what, than, than anybody could imagine. Daniel faced the very same temptation, but he was a better man than I am. And most of us all fit in the same category. Daniel had that same temptation, but he did not succumb to it. Daniel was one of these guys who said he was in a position to rise way up in the political system of Babylon. He could have said, you know, if I draw a line in the sand for my faith, I may be limiting how far I can be promoted. We have school teachers today who are getting fired for just mentioning the name of Jesus. Daniel drew a line in the sand, and the king has said, I'm going to chop all you guys to pieces. If you cannot tell me, I've had, he said, a nightmare. And that cockeyed nightmare is keeping me up, and I can't deal with it. And so here's the deal. You tell me, all, he called in all of the people who are supposed to be good at that kind of stuff. They were the religious leaders of, the, of Babylon. He said, I want you guys to do two things. I want you to tell me what my dream was, and then tell me what it meant. And all of the, the, the Babylonian guys said, hey, look. You tell us what the dream was, and we'll tell you what it meant. He said, no, it's not going to be that way. You'll either tell me what I dreamed, and then tell me what it is, or I'm going to chop you up into pieces. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were all a part of that group that he called in. And Daniel, he said, guys... I don't have the foggiest idea what that cockeyed politician called himself a king. I don't know what his nightmare was, but I know who does. And then he used a phrase that I think was the first time it was ever used in the Bible. 
he used the phrase, but there is a God in heaven who does. And I think that phrase, God in heaven, I believe here in Daniel was the first time it was ever used. Because you see, the gods, they, that was a whole new concept. And it was partly true, but not 100% true today. Because if you're a Christian, you have been born again. And born again means born of the Spirit of God. And God actually lives in your body and mind. So unless this is heaven, and I doubt it, he's both, God is everywhere. He's in heaven, wherever that is. And praise God, he's in Saudi County. And he can help us do what we need done if we will get on our knees and on our face before the Lord and stay there until we hear from him. Because that's exactly what Daniel did. Here's what it says. As he talks to the king. Verse 16 says it. And this Daniel went into the king and asked for time so that he might interpret the dream for him. Then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. He urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the men of Babylon. During the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. It's probably in a dream. Then Daniel praised the God of heaven, and, and then it outlines it. And, and so then he goes, in verse 24, he went to the king's, the, the guy who ran the king's, uh, all of the kings surrounded themselves with elite troops, and the head of that, that group of elite troops was a guy called Arioch. And he goes to him and he says, Do not execute the wise men of Babylon. Take me to the king, and I'll interpret his dream for him. And Arioch took Daniel to the king at once and said, I found a man among the exiles from Judah who can tell the king what his dreams mean. And the king asked Daniel, also called Belshazzar, Are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? And Daniel replied, No wise man, enchanter, magician, diviner, can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mystery. And he has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what's going to happen in the future or days to come. That's what your dream is all about. And he said, as you were lying there, O king, then verse 29, your mind turned to things that are to come. And the revealer of mystery showed you what's going to happen. And as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because I have greater wisdom than any other living man, so that you, O king, may know the interpretation and that you may understand what went through your mind. And then he describes to the king what he had seen in his nightmare. And this is what it looked like. He had a vision, and here's the way it reads. Keep that up there. You looked, O king, there, and before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. That's as far as we'll go at that. Now then, and he says, here's what it's really all about. 
Each one of those represents a kingdom. Yours, the, the head of gold is your kingdom, Nebuchadnezzar. And the silver is the, king, is, is the kingdom that's going to replace you someday. It's called the Medo-Persian Empire. And they're going to be conquered then by the Greek Empire under the, under the authority of Alexander the Great. The Iron Empire that's going to replace them in time is the Roman Empire. And then we'll talk about the other later on. He said, that's what you saw. These are the things yet to come. Now let me tell you some things you ought to know, and I'll do this as quickly as I can because of time constraints. Within liberal seminaries where I went, and in many of your local churches that are dying, let me tell you something that will probably upset some of you just because I'm naming names, but get over it. Liberalism is destroying the, the, the Presbyterian Church, USA. Liberalism is destroying the Methodist Church, United Methodist Church, coming from their seminaries. And scary as it is, because I've always respected the Church of the Nazarene, their seminaries are headed in the same direction. I hope they can turn that around. Today, the one church that, that is really caught up in it, that, that is absolutely in death throes, is the Lutheran church. They're dying because they have said, this book of Daniel is, is not true. It was written, Nebuchadnezzar didn't have that dream. That was all made up, and it was written after the Roman Empire came into existence. And it was written as though it were a prophecy given to Daniel 500 years ahead of time. And so they're saying, there's nothing supernatural about this at all. The God of heaven, all of that was made up and put in the form of a prophecy when it's really written as history later on. And they gave it what's called a later date. Thank God for the, uh, for the, uh, the finding that we had at a place called Qumran, the Dead Sea Scrolls, because the Dead Sea Scrolls had the whole book of Isaiah and lots of other passages that were written way, way before the liberals said that they were. What liberalism does is they have what's called a closed universe. There is no God in heaven. There is a natural cause for every effect here. And so anytime that there's anything miraculous in, their, in the Bible, it's relegated to either one of three things. <clears throat> it's either called myth or legend. Or in some cases, it's called kerygma. That just means there's a core of truth to it. You need to know this. Because what the liberal seminaries have said is what's also now being taught in your colleges. And what it does is it undercuts the authority of the Bible as being a fraud. And yet, we spend twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000 a year to send our kids to be educated to not believe the Bible by guys who have PhDs. This won't be very nice, but it's the truth. I was taught that there is a... There's an A.B. degree and a B.S. degree and an M.A. degree and a Ph.D. The B.S. was called bull manure. And the 
AB was called all bull, and the MA was, and the MS was more the same, and the PhD was piled higher and deeper. That really is kind of funny if you if you're not so straight laced that you can't laugh out loud. Because there's a lot of truth to it. There's a lot of truth to it. Anytime, anytime you run in, I see, and our liberal seminaries have taught our preachers that, our preachers that, and then they, the people in the pool, in the pews, they don't believe that, but they don't know what to do about it. And any of us who actually say, look, that's devilish, bad stuff, well, you oughtn't to talk about people like that. Listen, Daniel did, Jeremiah did, Isaiah did. Ezekiel did, and as long as I've got breath, I will too. Because I want people to know. Now, let's look at something else here that is really kind of neat, because I have to do this in about six minutes. Give me the picture again. See that rock? Let's read a little more of what we were reading here. Starting at verse 44, chapter 2. In the time of those kings, meeting all of those empires, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. Nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end. But in itself it will endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock out of the mountain, but not of human hands. A rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, the gold to pieces. And he said, it crushed us to the place where the wind can just blow it away. Now what's he talking about? Well, we've already cheated and given you the meaning of that rock. But when you go to the New Testament, in the 16th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is actually talking about this. Now listen with both ears because I have to move quickly. Jesus is with his apostles at the foot of Mount Hermon, 10,000 foot mountain in the northern part of Israel adjacent to Syria. At the foot of that mountain was a city called Caesarea Philippi, meaning Caesar Philip. Jesus was sitting there with his disciples and he asked his disciples... In verse 13 of chapter 16, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others say Jeremiah, one of the prophets. But what do you, what about you? Who do you say I am? Then Simon Peter answered, You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Hang on. Jesus then replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of John, for flesh and blood hath not revealed this unto you, but my Father in heaven. Go back to the God of heaven. The God of heaven, Peter, has revealed this unto you. That's how you know. That's how Daniel knew the dream. That's how Peter knew who Jesus was. God told him. Not done. And I tell you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. 
And Peter, I'll give to you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Now, hang on because we got to do some linguistic work here. Because the church through the years have messed this passage up royally. And one of the reasons is, probably well intended, is because they didn't know the difference between what the Greek actually said and what the English says. If you read it just like it goes here, without knowing a little more about it, it looks like they're saying, Peter, you're the rock. And what Peter really was, he said, you're Peter, and, and, and the word Peter is from the Greek word Petros, Petros, and because and, and, he was Cephas and he renamed him, is a rock that you can take in your hand. Did anybody ever go down to a creek or the river or a pond and skip rocks across the water? Anybody ever do that? Yeah, most of us have. Just two women last night. <laughs> a bunch of wimps. And, and, it, and he says, Peter, you are a rock that you can skip across the creek on water. Well, what does he mean then? If you haven't heard of it, in linguistics, in languages, we have what's called an antecedent. In English, we sometimes call them modifiers. The antecedent of the word rock goes back to verse 16. The antecedent, he said, upon this rock of what you said when, when you said you are the Messiah or the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's the rock he's talking about. He was saying, you're, Peter, you're a stone that we use to skip across the creek. But the statement you made that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, is the rock. He's the bedrock. He's the foundation upon which the church is built. And, when the, and it's the kingdom of God is in the church. And Satan and all of his imps will not be able to destroy it. It's going to live forever. And if you're born again, you have then a citizenship in the kingdom of God. And you're going to live forever. And all the kingdoms of the world will go away. That's what he's saying. Jesus is that rock that will destroy all the kingdoms. Every knee shall bow and every tongue will ultimately confess that Jesus is the Christ. And anybody who believes it and puts their faith in him will be granted citizenship in God's eternal kingdom. And that's what was being revealed to Daniel way back then 500 years before Christ, and that's what happens here because it's the same God in heaven who reveals who he is and what he wants us to know. And he said, Peter, because you said that I am that rock that was mentioned in Daniel, because you said that, I'm going to give to you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, which meant that he got to preach the first sermon on the day of Pentecost. The keys to the kingdom, you see, is the gospel, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that he was dead, buried, and resurrected, and lives there never to die again for eternity. And you put your faith in him, he puts his spirit in you, which is eternal, and you'll live eternally too. Amen? That's, that's what it's really all about. And so it's important for you to know, it's important for you to know that when Jesus said, 
way back in John 3, that God of heaven loves this world so much that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in should not perish but be given eternal life because you're going to be a part of an eternal kingdom ruled by none other than Jesus himself. Well, the one thing I want you to remember is this. Nebuchadnezzar was a bulldog's pup and a fighting fool was he. He wouldn't give in, he wouldn't give up, neither by gosh will we. Because I want you to remember something I said when you go home. And the other little something you might put in the back of your mind is that Jesus is the foundation for everything we believe. When we were building this building, I got a minute to tell it and then we'll go. The contractor came to me along with the architect and said, we got a problem back there where the ramp is. They had dug down about 20 feet and still were in sand. And that's where the foundation for that back wall was going to be. And they said, you know, we got to keep on going till we hit something that is solid to build on. It cost us another $20,000 to fill that full of concrete when they finally got down to bedrock put the concrete on top of it so that that back wall is permanent and won't sag in the middle. What Jesus was saying was, he's telling you and me, I'm that foundation on which the church is built of apostles and prophets and pastors and teachers and it will last forever. And folks, if you're not a part of it, you better get on board. So Lord, dismiss us with a sense of your presence. Help us to remember who Jesus is and what he's done for us. I ask you to bless these, this gathering of people. May the fire of the Lord fill each one of them through the power of your Holy Spirit as we reach out to the world, and as we do whatever we can to see that our children are safe and kept in the faith and can share eternity with us. We ask for your help. We ask the God of heaven to fill us with wisdom and understanding and what we need to do and have us to fill us with the guts to do it. We pray in Jesus' name. And all the people said, amen. amen. Is that the best you can do? You're free to go. Christ Community Church, located at 25th and Thomas Avenue in Portsmouth, Ohio. Christ Community meets on Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 10.30 a.m. For more information, visit www.christcommunity.net or check out our Facebook page.